Psalm 121, follow as I read. In verse 1, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He who keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he who keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The Lord shall not smite thee by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth even forevermore. We're in a section of some 15 psalms known as the Psalms of, well, depends on how you translate the word, the Psalms of Ascent, the Psalms of Degrees, or I like the term Steps. Uh, It is clearly the Psalms that are uh, being sung as you move somewhere. Uh, As I mentioned last week, there are several theories, three particular ones, some say, that these 15 psalms were the psalms that the priests said as they ascended the 15 steps that they went up into the temple itself. That's possible. Others say that they're the psalms that the refugees sang when they came home from their Babylonian captivity. That's possible. I still think the best guess, and it is a guess, but I think it fits the situation that it's the psalms that the pilgrims took or sung, as they made their way to Jerusalem, recall that three times a year, the males in Israel were required to put in an appearance there in Jerusalem at the temple. Uh, Usually they went in the spring. There was a cluster of feasts uh, there in the spring of the year around our Easter time, Feast of Passover, um, unleavened bread, first fruits. And then 50 days later in the summertime, there's a Feast of Pentecost, and then in the fall, There was another cluster of feasts centering especially around the Feast of Tabernacles, which was sort of the the grand finale. That's your uh, final big blowout for the year. The harvest has now been gathered, and you are gathering to rejoice in God's goodness. So probably uh, these psalms are being sung as they make their way uh, towards Jerusalem to keep these feasts. We looked last week if you recall, in Psalm 120. In Psalm 120, if we were going to set it to a tune, we'd probably set it to a minor key because it is a psalm of complaint. We are being told why the... It's sort of like if you're going to go somewhere, especially going to move somewhere, you probably have some reason for going there. And that reason... There's a reason why you're not staying where you are and there's a reason you're going where you're going. Right? Unless you're just one of these people that just like to wander, uh, what, is, what do we call it? Wanderlust, just sort of like Crocodile Dundee going to walk about, you know, just see what's out there. But unless you're that, probably there is a reason why you're leaving where you are. And in that psalm, in Psalm 120, the psalmist has set forth uh, several reasons why he is leaving. His place where he is is a place of lies It is a place of impending judgment, and it is a place where all the people there are for war. 
And so the psalmist sets out in quest of a place of truth, a place of safety, refuge, and a place of peace. In fact, look at that very last verse in Psalm 120. He says, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. They're always wanting to go to Fifth City. I'm looking for a place of peace. So he sets out. If I were to sort of put this, and, and all of these will not follow. It's not like, okay, this is the first step, and this is the second step, and so forth. We'll, we'll see that some of these psalms don't follow in a strict order of someone making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, although most do. But if I were going to say, well, when is this psalm, Psalm 121 being spoken, it is sort of like the first night on the trail. Uh, keep in mind that as these pilgrims made their way towards Jerusalem, let's say you're in the family of Jesus up there in Nazareth, you've got about a three-day walk. Whichever way you go, most of the time they would go down the Jordan River Valley over on the east side of the Jordan down to about Jericho, and then they would ascend from Jericho into Jerusalem. But anyway you do it, you've got about a three-day walk. And keep in mind, there are no uh, holiday inns. There's no motel sixes, sevens, or eights, or anything like that. Uh, you're just out there in the middle of nowhere. Uh, there, there are these caravanserais every now and then where these caravans would stop for the night. But most of the time, that's why you traveled in a group, uh, because you sort of spend the night in camping on your way up to Jerusalem. And so this is a psalm that would fit that kind of circumstance, that it is the psalm you would sing before you would lay your head down that night in the dark out there on the way to Jerusalem. You're about to get some sleep, but while you slumber, your God does not. That seems to be the idea. I want you to look at the structure of the psalm just a minute. Somewhat fascinating, since I've had a little bit of experience trying to write poetry and songs and that kind of thing. I sort of watch uh, for how things rhyme or how things are tied together. I'm always fascinated by some of the structure of good poetry. Um, I, my, my rhyme schemes are very, very simple, uh, but good poetry has sometimes very complex rhyming schemes. Um, let me pick one. Robert Frost. Whose woods these are, I think I know, but he lives in the town below. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. Now notice you had something rhyming with snow three times, and then you had one oddball. And whatever's the oddball becomes the three in the next set with one oddball, which becomes the three in the next set with one oddball. Fascinating. I mean, that takes some thinking. Let me say it again. Whose woods these are, I think I know, but he lives in the town below. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. So here is the oddball, which becomes then the theme of the next one. My little pony thinks it's queer to stop without a farmhouse near. Between the woods and frozen lake, the darkest night of the year. Lake now is the oddball word, which becomes the theme of the next one. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there's been some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of gentle breeze and downy flake. Sweep 
And then the last line, he doesn't do it. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. I'm, I'm fascinated by that kind of stuff. I'm sorry. I've learned a long time ago other people are not fascinated by any of this, but I tend to be. I, I like it. Well, you've got the same, and, and we do. There's a sense in which you've got couplets here. You've got two verses that go together in a theme, and the theme of the second verse is going to be set in the first verse, and sometimes you pick up the wording in the second verse that you've stated in the first verse. Uh, I'm trying to think. Um, we have a hymn that we sing, Be Thou My Vision. Uh, and I'm struggling here. Al, you got a hymnal right there? Charlie, anybody got a hymnal? No, no, look it up. I think it's, what is it, 382? And what you do in that hymn is whatever words you end with, the end of, what's the last verse? Okay, Charles got it up there for us. Next verse. Next verse. High King of Heaven, my treasure thou art. Now go to the next verse. High King of Heaven. Notice how you've picked up the thought from the previous verse to introduce the next verse. That's very clever and that's very interesting. I like that kind of stuff. Well, that's what's going on here. You'll notice that we have couplets in uh, verse 21. I mean, Psalm 121, verse 1, he's asking the question, From whence cometh my help? And the help becomes the theme of the second verse. And then the third verse is that we have the idea that he will not slumber. That becomes the theme of the fourth verse. Fifth verse, he is your keeper, the, the one who shades you. And that becomes the theme of the sixth verse. See how those tie together? I mean, that's good poetry. If nothing else, that's good poetry. It's interesting, the structure here. So... We're going to take it exactly like that, that we've got four couplets, each introducing a separate theme. And the theme is, if we were to ask, is, well, he's asking, from whence cometh my help? It's basically, what are we looking to God for? Now, that's terrible English, but trust that you get the idea. What are we looking to God for? And notice the first couplet, we are looking to God for help. I suspect that when I read verse 1, most of you sort of in your mind said, I've, I've heard that before. Uh, 121 verse 1 is a very common verse. I lift up mine eyes into the hill from whence cometh my help. What does that mean? What exactly is the psalmist saying here? Is he saying his help? Does he look to the hills for help? Or is he simply saying, I'm looking to the hills and where's my help going to come from? Uh, the grammar is somewhat nebulous here. You don't have punctuation in Hebrew. You don't have question marks. And so you have to sort of fill in the blanks. Is he making a declarative statement? I lift up mine eyes to the hill from whence comes my help. In other words, my help comes from whence, from there, 
Is that what he's saying? Or is he asking a question, an interrogative statement? I lift up my eyes to the hills, where's my help going to come from? You, you see the different ways you can understand that text, and it's not real clear what is meant. Uh, it can be understood perhaps either way, but I think we need to make an observation here that wherever you're coming from in Israel, more than likely you're going up to go to Jerusalem. As I tried to explain several times, there is this center mountainous spine right through the heart of Israel, north and south. And so if you're coming from, say, where Jesus would be raised, in Nazareth, you would swing down through the Jordan River Valley, down to Jericho, and then you would cut back towards Jerusalem. Do you realize that Jericho is the lowest city on earth? It's 850 feet below sea level. That's low down. Jerusalem sits about 2,500 feet above sea level. So from, and you can stand on the top of Mount of Olives in, outside of Jerusalem and see the Dead Sea. So you almost see down to Jericho. It's that close. But in that distance, you climb from 850 feet below sea level up to about 2,500 feet above sea level. So this is quite a hike. It's quite a hill. You know, we think of Jerusalem being 2,500 feet high. I mean, compared to the Rockies, you know, you got peaks out there 13,000, 14,000 feet above sea level. But remember that what really makes mountains impressive is not necessarily how high they are above sea level. It's how abrupt they are, how high they are above the surrounding terrain. And the mountains out west may be that tall, but typically the the other mountains, the ridges that intervene, um, they don't look that impressive. The Tetons is a rare exception where one of the reasons why the Tetons are so impressive is that they shoot up to almost 14,000 feet from a valley floor of about 5,000 feet. So it's just a sheer, uh, most of the time there's foothills and everything else in between. Am I making any sense? You understand it's the abruptness, it's the amount of change. So when you're thinking of Jerusalem sitting up there at 2,500 feet and you're starting at 800 feet below sea level, that's quite a hike. And so notice that you're always looking up. If you're coming the other way, if you're coming around by Caesarea, around the coast, you're at sea level. Somehow you've got to go up on that on that ridge. Uh, for instance, the road to Emmaus. Remember Jesus appeared to his disciples. That is the road from Jerusalem over to the coast. And if you take that road, you've got to go up a pass at Beth Horam. That's where the Roman army was defeated by, you know, governed by Cestius. Uh, the Roman 10th Legion was, suffered a miserable defeat there. They lost their eagle, of all things. And the reason was that to go up that trail, they had to march single file. And the Roman army's strength was the fact that when they went into battle, they went into these square formations where they locked their armor together. They couldn't do that on the side of that hill. It was that steep. So they were sitting ducks for the others up above them on the ridge. All of that to say that pretty much wherever you start out in Israel, there are exceptions, but pretty much when you go to Jerusalem, you've got to walk uphill. And so you're looking up at where Jerusalem is going to sit. And therefore, when the psalmist is saying, I will look and lift up mine eyes into the hills from whence cometh my help, 
let's remember that he's not just talking about any mountains. He's talking about the mountains of Israel. And it is there in those mountains that Jerusalem sits. And what's important there is that this is where God has made his presence manifested there in the temple. And so the next half of the couplet makes it clear that he's not looking to the mountains for his help. He's looking to God for his help. Do you see what I'm saying? It's God who is the helper. The fact is that it's there in Jerusalem that this God who is his help has made his presence known and manifested. And let's remember that at the end of the day, the help that we need has to come from God. It's not going to come from the preacher. (laughs) I can just pretty much guarantee that one. Not going to come from this person or that person. If you get helped, spiritually speaking, that help must come from God Almighty. And so, notice the psalmist is on his way to Jerusalem. He is surveying the scene up ahead of him and saying that this is where his help resides. Okay, let's look at the next couplet. The second thing he's looking for is for protection. In verse 3, it says, He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Notice the idea of your foot being moved. If you're on a trail, a steep path, one of the dangers is for your feet to slip out from under you and that you would fall. Now, this analogy is used throughout Scripture, but especially in the Old Testament, that uh, you don't want to slip. I'm thinking of uh, what psalm is it? Psalm 73, the psalm of Asaph. My foot had well nigh slipped. And just, you you understand what Asaph is saying. He's not talking physically, but he's using the physical to describe his spiritual state that he had just about fallen away from the worship of God. He almost slipped. His feet almost went out from under him. And so notice that God here is the one that the psalmist sees as not allowing his foot to slide or slip or be moved. It's his God who keeps him standing upright. It's the God who is protecting him. Notice that while you sleep, God doesn't. Now that's a pretty strong contrast to the pagan gods. We have in the case of uh, the Baal worshipers in Elijah's day that uh, when they're up there dancing on the altar and all that, rah, rah, uh, here's Elijah. I can almost see him with a piece of Johnson grass in his mouth chewing on it up there under the shade tree. Y'all, y'all not yelling loud enough. <laughs> you know, he's hard to hear. Your God, and maybe he's out, oh, I know what it is. He's sleeping. The pagan gods would sleep. And so notice that the psalmist is saying that our God will never sleep, and therefore he is preserving and protecting us. Now, we would ask ourselves, what does the psalmist mean by sleep? There is a sense in which the best of us cannot be awake 24 hours a day. Some of us can't even go near 24 hours a day, for we got to lay our head down. we got to get some sleep. And one of the problems with sleeping is that you cannot be watching while you're asleep. Right? Therefore, the burglar breaks in in the middle of the night when everybody's asleep. The idea is, is that 
uh, in the cities of old, the enemy would attack at night. And that's why they had watchmen while everybody else is sleeping. You got the watchman up on the wall keeping an eye out for the enemy so he can wake you up and alert you if the danger approaches. But notice that there is this sort of built-in problem that man has is that we, as best as we try, cannot be totally watchful all the time. And by that I mean we have the duty to watch, to watch in prayer. Paul will use that terminology. And yet, uh, what do we mean? There's always going to be things, we use the expression, I never saw that coming. Anybody ever had that happen? I didn't see that one. And I could have been watching and watching all the time and I never would have seen that coming. In other words, there is simply things in life of which we will not be able to be cognizant of. But what the psalmist is pointing out is just as when you would slumber, God is watching over your sleep, that there is a God in heaven who sees everything that's coming. Nothing catches him by surprise. He's omniscient. He knows. He knows the danger that lurks. And it's that God who is keeping the pilgrim. I mean, it comes right down to it that the reason that we believe, and I'm going to get to eternal security in a little bit, but the reason that we believe in eternal security is not because we're such good followers, it's because we've got such a good shepherd. We have a God who preserves, who keeps his people, doesn't allow their feet to be moved. Um, he's the one then that when we have to close our eyes, that we can trust that our God is still awake and still watching. Spurgeon told a story about a uh, ship captain who was taking his ship across the Atlantic. His family was on board the ship. And everybody was down below the deck asleep when a squall came blowing across the surface of the water and hit the ship broadside and just about capsized it. And, of course, the, the fam, everybody is uh, falling out of their bunks and berths, and they're scrambling to get their clothes on in case the worst is about to happen, in case they're going to go down into the drink. And the captain, as I mentioned, his own family was down asleep, and he had a little eight-year-old girl, eight-year-old daughter, who uh, is awakened from her sleep by what has transpired, and she simply asks one of the other men there, is my father on deck? And he said, yes, he is. At which she crawled right back in the bunk and went to sleep. Her father's the captain. He's on deck. There's no reason for me not to be asleep. You see the principle? And that's the thing that the psalmist is expressing right there. My father, he's got it under control. Me being awake is not going to help anything. Might as well go back to sleep. All right, third couplet. Not only are we looking for help, for protection, we're looking for shelter. Notice here the same idea, the Lord is your keeper, your preserver. But the interesting way it's expressed, that the Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. Now, why do you need shade? The sun gets hot. 
Therefore, the idea of God's presence, and this, I, I think, alluding to the wilderness wanderings of Israel when the cloud by day accompanied them and so formed the shade, the Shekinah, which shaded them from the sun. And so it's the same type of idea that God is overspreading His people and He becomes their shade from the burning, scorching heat of the sun. And so notice the second couplet is that the sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. Uh, I, I couldn't help myself in studying for this, bursting out laughing a couple of times, because I was reading some of these old accounts from the 1700s and 1800s of commentators upon this particular, that last part of that verse, and they were talking about the moon, um, moon burning you. This, this guy is talking about that people in the east have to sleep with their heads covered because if they don't, that the light of the moon disorients them and they can't see. And they have, what do you call it, moonstroke. <laughs> I say, where in the world did they come up with that? Well, keep in mind, it wasn't until modern times that we quit attributing to the moon certain problems of the brain. There's a reason we call it lunacy because it was thought that the moon made you crazy. And so they seem to be expressing that. They talked about tribes in India that uh, the healers over there tie their healing to the phases of the moon and the idea you're either going to get better or worse as the moon goes through its phases. And I'm thinking that's a pretty good bet. You're either going to get better or worse <laughs> one way or the other. But, uh, but this very much superstition connected to the moon, and some Christian commentators as much as uh, 200 years ago were still sort of buying into that theory. Well, I don't think he's talking about moonshine being the problem of whatever sort, or moonstroke as opposed to sunstroke. It's easier for us to see the sun... Uh, as being our problem, but it just seems to me that what the psalmist is alluding to is whatever phase that we're going through, whether it's the time when the sun is ruling the day or when it's the moon ruling the night. Um, I, 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 I can't prove this, but this is my Texas upbringing. David, you've probably heard some of these stories out of West Texas about the Comanches. These Comanches would take raiding parties uh, down into Mexico, and they would go on the times of the full moon because at the full moon they could see at night which they're going down there to steal horses and so forth. And so the full moon, they call that in that part of Texas a Comanche moon because that's when your Comanches are going to come after your horses is in the light of the full moon. I'm I'm just suspicious that maybe something like that's going on here because if you're out there in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night, uh, a full moon allows your enemy to get around a little bit. I, I'm just sort of, I guess I'm thinking in terms of the Comanche Indians, but there were these thieves and raiders that would try to make off with your stuff. Whatever the case, it is speaking of the two phases of life, the daytime, the nighttime, and that God will be your shade your cover regardless of what you're going through. And finally, we come to the last two verses, the last two couplets. 
notice now that the shift has gone from God's help, His protection, His shelter, to His preservation. And by that, I mean the idea of Him keeping you. Now, we had in the previous section, the Lord is my keeper. And uh, you ladies probably would identify with this more than men in the sense that you know something about preserving something. You make preserves. The idea you preserve jam or whatever to keep it. It doesn't go bad. You can store it. I mean, we, we live in a day where we take refrigeration for granted, but it wasn't all that long ago that a real problem is how do you keep meat from spoiling? You need to smoke it and salt it, cure it. Uh, how did you keep vegetables? How did you keep jam? So forth. You had to make preservatives out of it. So the idea of keeping it, to preserve it, and that God is the preserver of His people from all evil. This is, I said a moment ago, we'll be uh, hearing the idea of God, uh, His eternal security. But notice what this is saying is that God not only calls, but He keeps those He calls. That means He does not allow them, and to use Jesus' term, anyone to pluck them out of my hand because they're in my Father's hand and no man is more powerful than He. Uh, We sometimes hear this express once saved, always saved, which I believe is true. I just believe it's a terrible way of expressing the truth in that it implies that, well, now that I'm saved, I can do anything I want to. It doesn't matter. I'm kept. I'm going to heaven. Well, what this is saying is noticing that it is your conduct that God is keeping. Notice He is preserving you from evil, preserving your soul, and especially that last phrase, the Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth. What is this expression? It's a Hebrew idiom. You're going out and you're coming in. Anybody want to take a shot at it? What does that mean? You're coming and going. What is it? What would we call that? Not by me. <laughs> what? You're coming out and you're going in. It's quoted at funerals. Barry, I don't know what kind of funerals you've been going to, but no, I, I'm. I, that could well be. It's used in the Old Testament a couple of times. Uh, Achish, King Yabedera. Solomon asked for help from God for his going out and his coming in. David, at when he is down in the Philistine area, King Achish. Uh, there, you remember the Philistine lords are saying, we're fixing to go to battle. This guy's going to go to battle. He's going to turn on us in the middle of the battle. So we don't want to go to war uh, with this guy. And Achish says to David, I have observed thee in all you're going out and you're coming in. And you've, you've been an upright fella all the while you've been here with us. So from that, what would you deduce? How would you put that in modern terms? Your affairs, your conduct, the way you behave yourself, that's probably, in my thinking, the best way we would express the thing. 
Achish is basically saying, I've, I've watched the way you behave yourself. You're going out and you're coming in. And that's what Solomon is asking for wisdom. How to, how to conduct himself properly before his God. That's what he's asking help with. Uh, there is a place where God is saying to the Assyrians, uh, I, have, I see your comings out and your goings in. You're, I've watched your conduct. I know what you're up to, is what he's saying. And so the idea is, is that this is the manner by which we conduct our affairs in life. And notice that it is that that is being preserved. It is not just your destiny that's being deserved. That's part of it. In other words, it's not just, well, now I'm saved, because so I'm going to have the destiny of heaven. What this verse is saying is that it is your conduct, your character, your, your behavior that God is going to preserve. That make sense? In other words, that salvation is not just a pass, that now you can get into heaven, and it doesn't affect how you live, but that the God who has saved you is also keeping you. It's like, uh, I guess the best analogy I can give you is that of a shepherd and his sheep. That the shepherd, when he is conducting his sheep from point A to point B, doesn't just come and give them a map and says, here you, here you are, fellas, and I'll meet you over here. But that the shepherd is conducting the sheep to that destination. And when the sheep strays, there's a reason that staff has a hook on the end of it. He grabs you by the neck and yanks you back into line. And so the point is, not that Christians never will stray, but that we have a keeper. We have a shepherd who is watching over us, correcting our behavior, bringing us back, as it were, into the flock. So that salvation is more than just your final destination. It is the whole process of getting there, and the whole process of getting there, you have this one who is watching, preserving you in all your going out and your comings in, how you behave yourself in this world, and notice the eternal nature of it. Not only will he do it now, he'll do it forever. Okay, do you understand? Let me ask you for a little feedback here. You understand why you would say this is a nice song to sing on the trail? As the sun is setting, you're about to lay your head down, you're going to go to sleep. But there's a reminder here that the God that I worship, the God that I'm looking to for help, is a God who never sleeps. And the same God who has watched over me and shaded me in the daytime. We didn't talk about shading your right hand. That's a strange expression. Let me comment on that before we quit. Um, what, what would you say your right hand indicates? What, what do you normally... Jim? Power authority. You, you say, this is my right hand man. Or Christ, sit down at the right hand of God. And the reason, it is with the right hand that we do what we do. That's generally, unless you're left-handed, that's the uh, hand of strength. That's the hand of power. And so, for God to say, I'll be a shade to your right hand, would seem to indicate that what he's going to do is to guard the fact of enabling you to do what you need to do. So, he is enabling that by being a shade to your right hand. It's a strange expression. Number one, to be a shade 
in the first place is sort of weird symbolism to us, but then to be a shade to your right hand. You think, well, I need a shade for my forehead, but why my right hand? But it would seem to lend credence to that, that this one in the place of power of our lives is to be shaded. Okay. All right. Um, let me ask you, anybody here see a personal application of this to you? Talked about how this would fit the case of a pilgrim going up to Jerusalem. Anybody here have problem with moonstroke? <laughs> Anybody have problem with moonshine? <laughs> That's a loaded question, isn't it? I don't think that it's talking about this fella. I mean, literally, this this commentator was talking about how this fella had reported that these uh, on a ship at night. They said sailors know this at sea that uh, the moon, when it's bright, that uh, he he uh, said this sailor was asleep and his face was all twisted up like a moonstroke. He called it, and uh, and that when he woke him up, he couldn't see for a little bit. His eyes couldn't adjust because of this moon. Situation. I say, you wake me up out of a sound slumber. I can't see at all for a little while. I have no clue where I am. I don't think that had anything to do with the moon. But I'm just. I was just amazed that as little as a uh, two hundred years ago, that still the moon is the source of all these maladies. You know, in your life. But but think about that a moment. Let's bring this home to us. You usually at night. When you lay your head down, if you've got problems, if there's difficulties that you can't solve, that's when the chickens come home to roost, right? And we lay there and we mull these things over in our mind. We sit, lay there and toss and turn. And a lot of times we can't turn our minds off. We sit there and brood. Worry, fret, take care, to use biblical language for these things. And most of the time, there's not a thing we can do about it. So what's the answer? It's to realize that the God that lives up there on that mountain is our heifer. And He guards us not only in the daytime when the sun is shining, He guards us at night. He watches over His people and He never slumbers nor He sleeps. And like that little girl on that boat, as long as you know your father is on duty, you can go back to sleep. That we literally turn these things over into the hands of our God. We, we more or less let Him worry about it. You, the old joke, you know, about the fellow that, told his friend he had hired a guy to do all his worrying for him. Just got tired, worn out for worrying. So he hired a guy to be his warrior. The guy said, well, what, is he, what are you going to pay him? He said, I'm going to pay him $80,000 a year. He says, how in the world are you going to afford to pay him $80,000 a year? He said, not my problem, that's his problem. <laughs> that's his worry, <laughs> not mine. You see, that's the point, is that we ought, of all people, Christians ought to be able to relax. And by that, I don't mean to be slothful. I, I guess when I think of relaxing, I'm thinking of sitting down, falling asleep in the easy chair. I'm not talking about not being watchful, not doing our duty, 
that we can do. But again, like sleep, you can't be watching everything. You don't know what's coming, and what you do see, you can't take care of it. So there's a sense in which we simply have to acquiesce and give these things over to our God. I know easier said than done. I wrestle with the same same thing. Other thing, uh, you see any personal application to you? Anything strike you? Sue? This psalm. There's the uh, what I call the Christian's prescription for mental health. Not that anybody here needs that, but just, just in case. Philippians 4, whatsoever things are pure and lovely, you know, good report, think on these things. There's a sense in which we can focus the attention of our mind on something. Um, our problem is that we get our minds focused on our problems, on what we're facing, and we can't turn our mind off. And what Paul is simply saying is you don't have to turn your mind off. If I say, see that light over there, I want you to give that your undivided 100% attention and, and do the same thing with that light over there. Can you give both of them your undivided 100% attention? No. The way we're built forces when we give something our attention, we take our attention off of something else. And so what Sue is saying is very valid here is that when you're asleep in the night on the trail with the wolves howling, focus your attention on the might, the power, the preserving nature of your God. And in focusing your attention there, your mind of necessity cannot be focused on the other things at the same time. It's just physically impossible. We're not built that way. At least I'm not. Some of you schizos out there, you know, that's another story. But <laughs> hmm. Anybody else? Al? Yeah, the, we, we, we don't realize, but we're walking a fine line all the time of... Uh, Yeah, we have um, our soldiers thinking about those in the military uh, looking at the possibility of another conflict and what that would mean to them. I guess I have a dog in that fight, so I understand it. But uh, we're worn out from what we've tried to do the last 12 years and then to get another conflict going, which is very possible in the scenario we're looking at. And the problem is we never know uh, when we get in these things what one thing leads to another, um, unintended consequences. So pray for our nation, pray for our leaders to have wisdom, know what to do and what not to do.